There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 15 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. If you would prefer to listen to our podcast a few days early without adverts, you can for just $3 a month. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Her dream wedding dress hung on a door in her parents' home. She had spared no expense buying a £2,000 gown. Today, September 6, 2003, was meant to be her big day. She was supposed to be getting ready. Instead, Deborah Pemberton was waiting anxiously with plainclothes police for the phone to ring. October 2001. Deborah met Dr. Jan Falkowski while pursuing their shared interest in powerboat racing. They were an impressive couple. Jan, in his early 40s, was a renowned and respected psychiatrist and a former UN peacekeeper. He was passionate about powerboat racing and even broke world records in the sport. Deborah, who was younger than Jan in her early 30s, worked as an accountant in central London at the head office of Debenhams, a department store. They both owned their own homes, Jan's house in Epsom, Surrey, and Deborah's flat was in Paul, Dorset. They divided their time at both properties and Jan's boat, which was moored at Limehouse Basin Marina in the east of London. Their romance progressed fast and they got engaged. 
A few months later, the announcement was featured in National Health Service magazine, a publication available within hospitals, free for waiting patients or staff to read on their break. The magazine had circulated in St. Clement's Hospital, where Yan worked. While driving on the way to Paul on October 25, 2002, both Deborah's and Yan's mobile phones rang. In the first call to Deborah, a male voice asked for her initials, and that was it. Then he rang again and claimed to know where she lived and then said, We are going to get you. Deborah found out someone had called her parents home, a woman with a Mediterranean accent, and demanded they tell her Yan's address. Deborah called her lodger in Paul, telling her to secure all the doors. A text came in reciting Deborah's address. After Yan's text tone sounded with a message from an anonymous number, more texts bombarded both of their phones, with one message to Yan reading, You will never know how much I feel for you in the last four years. When they arrived in Paul, the couple reported the series of communications to the police. The authorities were powerless to do anything at this point, but a log was kept. The messages didn't stop. It was later discovered the number sending the messages and making the calls had been rerouted from a computer in Sweden, making it untraceable. Deborah was the recipient of more messages telling her to keep away from Jan. The unidentified woman knew the name of Jan's boat and told Deborah the boat was not for her. When the couple arrived back at the boat in London three days later, they found the lights inside were on. They were sure they had been turned off. Certain their harasser had been aboard, they reported the incident at Limehouse Police Station. It was recommended that the couple change mobile phone numbers. Deborah later said in an interview, We both felt that despite everything, we didn't want to be beaten, and if we changed our phones, we might never know who was behind it all. The intimidation continued. Deborah was receiving up to 10 threatening text messages daily, though it was now just the female making contact with her. The couple's friends and family were also contacted, with the caller asking for Jan and Deborah's dates of birth, medical information, and their car registration. The next physical incident occurred two days later. Again, the boat was the target. The gas on the stove had been turned on, but it wasn't ignited. The boat was in a secure area of the Limehouse Basin Marina. People couldn't gain entry without first getting past the lockkeeper. Operating the gate that day was Elizabeth Mills. She recalled letting a female into the area where the boats were moored as the woman claimed to have a dinner date with Dr. Falkowski. Elizabeth Mills described the woman as having orange hair and a Mediterranean appearance. This incident was taken more seriously by police, as filling the cabin with gas could have easily led to fatalities. In late November, Yang got a text saying Deborah would end up in Limehouse Pool. A handwritten letter was then delivered to Yang's house. Information that the couple only shared in private conversation was then relayed to them via further text messages. They had planned a weekend getaway to Belgium and kept that information to themselves, but a message came through that said, You can't run away for the weekend. 
Deborah discussed getting her teeth whitened when she was on the boat with Ian. He later received a text message that read, Deborah Tart fancied whitening her teeth, her mouth could burn. The pair desperately searched the boat for bugging devices, but they came up with nothing. In January, Jan and Deborah made a temporary move to a house that was not linked in any way to them. Although some comfort came from the safe house, the harassment didn't stop. The months passed, and it was relentless. The mystery person took delight in making the couple aware that she knew their routines by adding details of their movements. Deborah would often take the train to Poole from Waterloo Station for the weekend. It was clear the stalker knew this and had been watching her. Some of the calls made even came from the call boxes in Waterloo Station. Daily life became a struggle. Deborah said even when she went to work, she would duck into doorways along the way as she felt like she was being followed. Debenhams, where Deborah worked, was in the middle of a multi-million pound takeover. A call was made to the chief executive of the department store in which the caller accused Deborah of leaking financial information to the press. The stalker also called the Sultan's Hotel in Paul, the venue where Jan and Deborah were to be married in a few months. She spoke to Sharon Malin, the chef. Following another incident where the caller pretended to be Deborah asking to cancel the wedding, the couple set up a password with the hotel to make any changes to the ceremony. The calls and text messages expanded to Deborah's friends and family, and as the September wedding date approached, the threats intensified. Some of the messages threatening to end Deborah's life read, Two weeks left before gunman visits you. Six of the ninth the date. You will be burnt down in your wedding dress. And, Fuck off you tart. SAS man will send you to heaven. Two weeks from today you'll be dead. Prepare your funeral, not your wedding. One simply read, You be dead. Jan's phone was also flooded with text messages. In July, one read, Please don't marry FDT. These were initials which stood for fucking Debbie Tart. You can do better. Look at you. Your life is in danger. Give Pembertons up now before we enter Marina Yacht. We'll do well to bullet you down. A further message received in September, the month of the wedding, read, One last chance. Let Debbie Tart go or you're going too. I make sure it will not be a wedding on 6, 9, 3. And another a few days later, You had your last chance. It's all in SAS man's hand. And another. Cancel wedding. Gunman work at Sultan's. Gun in ready for big feast. And finally, a day before the ceremony. Hope you spoke to Drew. Cancel it or I'm ready. Gunman work at Sultan's. Gun inside hotel. What else can I ask for? The chef at the Sultan's hotel had two texts that day. One of them said... Please get Yan to call off wedding 6 of the 9th 03. Many will be dead if they go ahead. The venue had already had threats saying that the culprit would poison the guests at the wedding. By this time the wedding had already been called off. The strain had taken its toll on the couple's relationship. But most of the guests... And more importantly, the stalker was convinced it was still going ahead as planned. Authorities were hoping to catch the culprit. Dorset police suspected that the stalker would be in pool for the planned wedding day and would make contact with her victims. 
Deborah stayed at her flat the night before the ceremony while officers undertook surveillance. The next morning, she went to her parents' house under the pretense she was getting married later that day. Police were right. The stalker made a flurry of phone calls, each one not being long enough to trace the call to a specific phone box. Vile messages were sent from the unregistered address. Some threatened the lives of Jan's two children from a previous marriage if the day's nuptials went ahead. Calls were traced to Bournemouth and Paul as the female stalker made her way to the venue. However, she slipped up on the call to Deborah's flat when she went off on a rant for too long. She was tracked and police were quick to capture her leaving the phone box where she had made numerous frantic calls after the one that traced her. She had 16 pounds of change left to make further calls. Finally, the police had someone in custody. 45-year-old Maria Marchese. Maria Marchese was born in Argentina during 1961. 
she emigrated to England when she was 17 years old and found work on the cheese counter at Selfridges, a luxury department store in London. She claimed to have no knowledge of the calls or harassment, though she admitted to being in Bournemouth as well as Paul, explaining she got off at the wrong train station. The telephone number for the chef at the Sultan's Hotel was found in her apartment, which Marchese kept obsessively neat. Food tins stacked the right way and books stacked in height order. Eerily, they found clippings and photographs of Jan Falkowski. The passage in her diary read, For once something magical. At once something stopped my heart. At once something goes for me. The chef correctly identified her in a lineup. However, the description of the woman that gained entry to Jan's boat, given by the gatekeeper at the Limehouse Marina, didn't accurately correlate to Maria Marchese. She was described as having orange hair when Marchese had black. When it came to picking out the visitor in the identity parade, Marchese was bypassed and someone else was chosen. When Jan found out the name of the woman arrested, he was able to connect the dots. Maria Marchese was the partner of one of his clients at the hospital. The client George, who had a history of psychiatric illness, attended an appointment with Dr. Jan Falkowski for half an hour every two to three months. Sometimes Maria Marchese accompanied him. George admitted himself as a voluntary inpatient at St. Clement's Hospital from April 22nd to June 19th, 2002. The stalking of Jan and Deborah started in October of that year. They had endured 11 months of relentless harassment. A casualty of the strain was their relationship. A few weeks after Maria Marchese was arrested, the couple separated. The doctor-patient relationship between Maria's partner George and Jan had to end. George was informed and Maria complained to Jan's bosses. For a couple of months, everything was quiet. Jan was in a new relationship with Beth and Ansel, who he had met while boating. Bad news came on December 8th, 2003, when the Crown Prosecution Service decided not to progress with the charges against Maria Marchese. According to court documents, no reason was provided, but some articles in the press say it was due to lack of evidence. Just as suddenly as it had started before, Jan had a threatening call to his work. The incident was reported to the police. On December 31st, Marchese travelled back down to Paul. Even though Jan and Deborah had separated, Deborah was still a target. Her flat was broken into, nothing was taken, but it was obviously staged to scare her. The windows had all been opened letting in the winter air. The lights had all been turned on and Deborah's belongings had been moved around. Worryingly, police believed keys had been used to enter the home. Deborah's health was suffering and she lost weight. There was a point where she considered taking her own life. Maria Marchese was arrested for a second time almost three weeks later on January 22, 2004. This time, she turned the case against her on its head. She explained that Dr. Jan Falkowski had raped her 18 months ago. It happened during the period that her partner had admitted himself to St. Clement's Hospital after she unwittingly digested drugs in a drink the doctor had given her. 
To support her claim, she submitted a pair of underwear which she wore on the day of the alleged attack. Dr. Jan Falkowski was arrested and charged with rape, a charge he categorically denied. While the investigation was carried out, he had to cease work at his private practice, his job at the hospital was suspended, and following company guidelines, he was not permitted to keep contact with his colleagues, many of which he had formed long-standing friendships with. The underwear was tested for DNA. It was confirmed that Jan Falkowski was a match. Seventeen months rolled by and it was just a month before the court case. Jan Falkowski's defence team submitted the underwear for further testing. The results also showed a partial DNA match. It belonged to Jan's girlfriend, Bethan Ansel. The couple recalled the rubbish bins outside of Jan's home appeared to have been tampered with between May and December 2003. Jan and Bethan's relationship began in May 2003 when he was still seeing Deborah Pemberton. Maria Marchese claimed the rape happened in June 2002, almost a full year before the couple started a relationship. There was no way Bethan's DNA should have been present. It was believed Maria Marchese was the person who disrupted the bins while sifting through the contents of Jan's discarded rubbish. Amongst the refuse, she retrieved a condom that had been used by Jan and Bethan, or it is possible she could have recovered the condom from Jan's workplace. Maria utilised her find by emptying the contents of the condom into a pair of underwear to support her allegation of rape. She didn't realise that the partial match to Bethan's DNA was distributed at the same time, making her evidence also her downfall. The Crown offered no evidence against Dr Jan Falkowski, The charge of rape against him was dropped in August 2005 before the case was taken to court. It was dropped on the advice of Senior Prosecutor for the Crown Prosecution Service, lawyer Kay Scudder. She told the Standard newspaper about the persistence of Maria Marchese, who wanted the case to be reinstated. Marchese started a harassment campaign against the lawyer who equipped her home with CCTV and a fireproof letterbox. More safety precautions were added by the CPS. Her bedroom door was reinforced and a panic button was installed so if an intruder had got into the home, by the time they managed to get into the bedroom, the police would have arrived. Kay Scudder felt these modifications to her home were necessary. Marchese had not only bombarded her with telephone calls, she had turned up at the Crown Prosecution Service's headquarters at Ludgate Hill in London. She had to evade the uninvited guest by leaving via the back entrance. Though a direct physical attack wasn't the main fear, she believed Marchese was capable of an act like setting fire to her flat. Kay Scudder recalled an incident to the press. She said, The day after I dropped the case, the barrister representing Dr Falkowski found blood over the front of his house and a red rose. It didn't seem like a coincidence. The DNA left at the scene did not match Maria Marchese's. The blood belonged to another man suspected of rape. In light of the new developments, the stalking case was reopened. Maria Marchese was charged, and just under a year later on August 2nd, 2006, she appeared at the Crown Court in Southwark, London. 
Of the four charges she faced, two were for harassment, one for threats to kill, and another for perverting the course of justice. The latter charge was for the false allegation of rape. The first harassment charge was related to the persistent torment of Dr. Jan Falkowski between October 1st, 2002 and September 7th, 2003. The second was the harassment of Deborah Pemberton during the same period. The threats to kill charge was put forth due to the text messages Deborah received during the run-up to the planned wedding. Throughout the trial, Maria Marchese rejected the allegations. She did not dispute that the calls and breaking into property took place, but she denied it was her that committed the acts, offering no opinion on who it might have been. Working in defence of Maria Marchese, Peter Higginson defended his client's claims when he addressed Dr. Jan Falkowski. He said, It remains my client's case that you stupefied her with a drug and ravished her. I suggest that you have within your own knowledge the capacity to provide her with a cocktail of drugs. Jan Falkowski denied even being alone with Maria Marchese and he poked a hole in the defence's accusation by informing the barrister that he did not in fact have access to prescription drugs. Using the secret affair that Jan started while still engaged to Deborah Pemberton as an example, Peter Higginson said the doctor's life was based on a complete tissue of lies and called Jan Falkowski a massive and complex liar. The doctor responded, I regret the way things turned out. I know it was very upsetting for Deborah Pemberton. I think things might have been very different if it had not been for the harassment. I never realised that somebody so evil would go to such a concerted effort to destroy my life. As the verdict was read out, an aggravated Marchese spoke aloud interrupting the judge and said, I did not commit this offence, your honour. He's a rapist. Addressing Maria Marchese, Judge John Price continued, This jury has deliberated for ten hours over a three-week case with evidence they have heard. They have found that between October 2002 and September 2003 you terrorised Miss Pemberton and Dr. Falkowski. You got into their lives in the most extraordinary way and found out about their day-to-day existence. You even found out that Miss Pemberton was having her teeth whitened and sent a text saying mouth will burn. You have gone to the most extraordinary lengths of accusing him of rape and if it was not for DNA experts who established that the DNA found was from him and his girlfriend at the time, that could have left him with a prison sentence. You have terrorised them. It is my good hope that something can be done for you. If not, you are going to prison for a very long time. Maria Marchese was found guilty. Sentencing was postponed until psychiatric reports were obtained. The pre-sentencing report found that Maria Marchese was still fixated on Jan Falkowski. It stated she continued to pose a great risk to him, his partners, anyone she wanted to form a relationship with, or anyone that got in her way. The report suggested time in a psychiatric facility was not the best course of action, as they found Marchese was not suffering from a psychiatric disorder. Although planned for September, sentencing took place in January after Marchese sacked her legal team. On January 19th, 2007, 
Maria Marchese was sentenced to nine years in prison and was expected to serve a minimum of six before she would be considered for parole. In addition, she was ordered to pay both Dr. Jan Falkowski and Deborah Pemberton £9,000 each, the total sum of her life savings. If the funds were not paid in three months, Marchese would face an additional year in prison. A lifetime restraining order was put in place to ban Maria Marchese from making contact with Jan, Deborah, Bethany and other people involved in the case, prosecuting barristers, prosecution lawyers and members of the police that were involved in the investigation. It also included the hospital where Jan planned to work and some of the yachting clubs where he socialised. Outside the court, a representative for the Crown Prosecution Service said, Maria Marchese is a dangerous individual who wreaked havoc in the lives of those she singled out for victimisation. We are pleased with the sentence and believe it sends a message to those who would seek to act similarly. Jan Falkowski spoke to reporters after the verdict. I wasn't too worried because I knew it was completely untrue. But as time went on, I was more and more worried because occasionally things do go wrong. And you know, sometimes innocent people are found guilty, so I was very worried. Um, and what was more unjust was, it wasn't a matter of my being innocent. It was a matter of my being innocent and her trying to make false accusations, which is even more unjust. Deborah Pemberton was also interviewed about her experience. The way that you answer a telephone call, um, the little box that you tick on information data sheets. Um, life, my life has been changed incredibly. Um, I've been strong enough to pull through this with the help and support of my family and friends. And I would like to, to be able to start again now. Today is day one of a brand new life. An appeal was filed by Alison Levitt QC on Maria Marchese's behalf after she had dismissed her defence team. However, shortly after the application for leave to appeal was filed, Alison Levitt QC was also dismissed by Marchese, who continued to supplement the submissions herself. Alison Levitt QC worked as an independent advisor to the court during the appeal hearing. The appeal stated that the charge of threats to kill was duplicitous. Evidence presented regarding the gas being left on in the boat and the break-in at Deborah Pemberton's home should have been inadmissible as there wasn't enough proof that Maria Marchese was responsible. It was also submitted that the text messages sent to Jan Falkowski were not threatening, but affectionate. Maria Marchese also sought leave to appeal her sentence as she believed it was passed on an incorrect factual basis and her total sentence was manifestly excessive. In Alison Levitt's initial filing, she stated that Maria Marchese was never identified at the Limehouse Marina. She also submitted there wasn't enough evidence to show that Marchese was directly responsible for the burglary at Deborah Pemberton's property, and there was every likelihood she may have imagined it given the mental strain she was under. An outcome for the appeal was heard on February 11, 2008. Whilst the appeal judges Lord Phillips, Mr Justice Royce and Mr Justice Beetson agreed with the technicality of Alison Levitt's multiple threats to kill argument, they cited a number of previous cases and went on to explain most of the threats in question were made in a lengthy series of text or other messages using similar phraseology. There was no basis upon which the jury could possibly have distinguished one message from another. 
The issue before the jury was simply whether the appellant had been responsible for this series of messages. The judges also dismissed the submission that the overall sentence was inappropriate or manifestly excessive as each of the charges were extremely serious. During October 2007, a single judge had considered the application for leave to appeal and labelled Maria Marquez's claims that the messages to Dr. Falkowski were affectionate as absurd. The three judges agreed, and this was dismissed. A further submission was made by Marchese as she felt the restoration order that precludes her from visiting certain hospitals would likely result in financial hardship when she is released from prison. The judges highlighted that there were some very serious financial consequences for Jan Falkowski as a result of the offence, of which the compensation paid was only a small percentage. Maria Marchese was told she could appeal to the court to have the order varied to enable a visit to a closer hospital. The judges also felt there were no grounds for which to change the compensation order. Maria Marchese's appeal was denied. So where are we now? It wasn't only Jan Falkowski's reputation that was in tatters after the accusation. His legal bill came to £120,000 and he lost his private practice. After his harrowing experience, he said, The victims of rape are rightly given anonymity, but I strongly feel this should also be extended to the accused until trial. In my case, this gave Marchese the freedom to make a false allegation, then systematically use this to destroy my reputation by approaching the press my employers and organisations to do as much damage as possible. Jan received some unexpected correspondence in the post after the trial. A married couple who did not want to be publicly named detailed their disturbing experience with Maria Marchese. They became aware of what was happening to Deborah and Jan when the case went to trial and was featured in the newspapers. Marchese began to stalk the couple in the early 90s. She was fixated with the male partner and targeted the female, harassing her work colleagues and friends by telling them the female victim worked as a sex worker. Marchese accused the male of threatening her with a knife on the London Underground. She was bound to keep the peace for 12 months at Bow Street Magistrates Court in London during February 1992. This meant that she agreed not to engage in certain behaviours for those 12 months or she could face a fine. A record of this agreement was not kept on file. The couple left London to start a new life in the north of England in 1993, but the stalking continued. 1996 marked a terrifying incident where Marchese threatened to kidnap the couple's young baby. The police issued her with a warning. Four years later, she was bound to keep the peace for 12 months in the north of England. In total, the couple endured stalking and death threats for nine years. In their letter to Jan, they said they thought this would have been on a police record. Maria Marchese had been bound over and not convicted of a crime, so the information was not put on a national police database. Therefore, police investigating Jan Falkowski and Deborah Pemberton's claims of stalking found Marchese to have a clean record with no history of intimidating behaviour. The TV movie dramatisation based on the pair's ordeal 
You Be Dead was made for ITV in 2009. Jan Falkowski was interviewed by the independent newspaper about the production and Maria Marchese's involvement. I think she tried getting the production halted, he said. She tried taking legal action against the producer. She's obviously unhappy that it's not her version of events and they didn't offer her a cameo part either, so that was obviously disappointing. Deborah Pemberton moved to France after she separated from Yann. She spoke to a newspaper in 2006. In the interview, she said that Marchese took away 11 months of my life and destroyed a relationship. But ironically, on one level, it did me a favour. If I had married Yann, it would have been a mistake and I would be divorced by now. I'm convinced now that he was the wrong man for me. It's all over now. I have a completely new life and a new man with whom I love very much, but I am a different person. I am no longer so open with people. She met John, the new man in her life, in France, and the couple were married in a small ceremony in 2010. Dr. Jan Falkowski returned to work for the NHS and began to rebuild his reputation. He and Bethan married, and Jan's only appearance in newspaper headlines since have been positive stories about his speedboat accomplishments. Referring to Marchese, he told the Evening Standard in 2007, I don't think of her as mad, just chillingly evil. She's an incredibly devious, calculating liar who is highly organised and intelligent. Maria Marchese was eligible for parole in 2012. We do not know where she is today. In the UK, if you need to report an incident of stalking, call 101. If you are in danger, dial 999. For further information, you can contact Paladin, a national stalking advocacy service who provide trauma-informed support, advice and advocacy to high-risk victims. Head to paladinservice.co.uk for more details. Where possible, it can be critical to keep a detailed log of stalking-related incidents, including threats made through third parties, phone calls, text messages and emails, as this will help authorities build a case against those responsible. In addition, if you are in the UK and wish to speak to someone on the phone, you can call the National Stalking Helpline, run by the Susie Lamplew Trust. The number to call is 0808 802 0300 Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com If you enjoyed the show please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. Every 60 seconds, a person is murdered somewhere in the world. There was a shootout in my house. I can't believe it. 
what causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things. He stabbed me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast that examines the most disturbing criminal minds. We shed a light on the devastating impact these violent crimes have on the victims and their families. When you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. You'll hear about the incredible strength of the survivors and what they did to fight back. I was studying his face because I was thinking, if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Subscribe to the Minds of Madness podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.